for today's message because if you'd asked me 48 hours ago what I was preaching on, I'd have said, I have no idea. In fact, I said to Becky on Friday morning, I said, I'm lost. I have no idea what I'm supposed to talk about. It's one of the biggest major holidays on the church calendar being Palm Sunday, and I have no starting point. I don't know what to do. So I said to her, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back through the years and I'm going to find one of my Palm Sunday messages. I'm going to print it off and I'm going to just preach it word for word because I'm lost. I have my creativity is not there. And that's what I started to do on Friday afternoon. Until I started to read the book of John 6, chapter 16, over and over again. And I realized there's a little part of the story of Palm Sunday that sometimes we overlook. And that's the story of Lazarus. Some of you know that just a few days before Palm Sunday, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in John chapter 16, said the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus. Lazarus was such a testimony to the power of God that the Pharisees said, we have to kill that man. Because people were starting to look at Lazarus and say, wow, that's a picture of God's transformational power. And when people were looking at Lazarus, they started to what? started to follow Jesus. And the Pharisees didn't like that because suddenly they weren't following the Pharisees anymore. They were following Jesus because of Lazarus. I thought that's a big part of Palm Sunday that sometimes we forget to see. Lazarus lived in such a way because of his, because of his resurrection that people said, I want to follow Christ. See, long before people want to follow Jesus and become like Jesus, they're going to look at you and I and say, I want to become like that person. That's the power of resurrection that happened in Lazarus' life. And that's something I think that we really need to focus on, becoming a little bit more like Lazarus. That the resurrection that God's done in our life is so powerful that, other, that the enemy would want to kill us. It's interesting to me because I thought about that story for a while and I thought, I wonder how many people in Lazarus' day were saying, you know what, we're hearing word that the Pharisees want to kill Lazarus, so maybe he should be quiet about what God's done in his life. Maybe Lazarus should just play it a little safe. Don't tell people that Jesus resurrected him from the dead. Don't tell people what God has done in his life because it was putting him at risk. A lot of people might have said, let's play it safe, but they didn't play it safe. Instead, Lazarus continued to go where Jesus went, continued to share a story, tell what God has done in his life, and it created a lot of controversy. But I'm glad he did it because in a powerful way, you see what, he, what changed. People wanted to see what is this God that can raise someone from the dead. And so part of what I love about Palm Sunday is that Palm Sunday here is one of the biggest events on the church calendar. My guess is probably every single church around the globe is talking about Palm Sunday today. And yet at the same time, there's not a whole lot of detail in the scripture about Palm Sunday. The Bible doesn't really give you a whole lot to go on. Which is kind of interesting. You think every single church is talking about Palm Sunday. And here, here's a few verses. Go for it. Doesn't give you much detail. Which is kind of surprising because this is an amazingly orchestrated event that's about ready to happen. Five or six hundred years before Palm Sunday, the book of Zechariah prophesies that this event is going to happen. Listen to Zechariah 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. Here you have this big story of Palm Sunday. 
On one hand, God has orchestrated this event in a beautiful and a powerful way that you see in the convergence of Old Testament prophecy in actual real-time events. And then on the other hand, you have the disciples who basically are admitting, we have no idea what's going on. There's not much detail in the text about what Palm Sunday is, but they surely tell you that the disciples were clueless of what was going on. In fact, one of the scriptures says in John 12, 16, now Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand the importance of what was taking place. I love the fact that that little detail's in there. I love the fact that the scripture gives us permission to say, I don't understand what is happening. Here these disciples have been with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years in the big momentous occasion where Jesus is coming into uh, Passover and the disciples are like, I have no idea what's going on. They're probably looking at each other just like, do you know what's happening? Do you, was this planned? What are we supposed to do right now? They had no idea what was happening and that is actually okay. We can take comfort in the fact that God is doing something and we're like, I don't know what's happening. Because so much of the point of Purim, so much of the point of Passover and the death and resurrection of Jesus is that we don't fully understand what is going on. But God had a plan. That God had a plan from five, six hundred, thousands of years ago of what was going to happen on Palm Sunday. But so often when we look at our lives and we look at the circumstances, like we're trying to figure it out. And Palm Sunday is a reminder, no, much of this has been choreographed decades and years and millennials before. And so instead of trying to figure out what's going on, we're supposed to just say, let's follow the one who actually has it all figured out. And that's the beauty of Palm Sunday. You can be like the disciples and say, I don't know what's going on. But I'm glad that guy knows what's going on. And I'm just going to follow him. So listen to the story in John 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem spread through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's quote, colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Everyone has gone after him. That's an amazing passage. There's literally people, are, the Jewish communities coming into Jerusalem. Some people say it's probably 300,000 coming into the city. Other estimate it's a million people are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. All the Jewish community from all over the region are coming in for Passover. You remember Passover is a celebration that God spared the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. So the Israelites come together to celebrate and give thanks to God for what he's done in the past, but also they got to bring their lamb to sacrifice 
to sacrifice for the sins that their family committed in the prior years. So you have a million Jewish people coming into the city, and they're all bringing what? A lamb. So some estimates say there's probably 250,000 lambs were being sacrificed during Passover. That's a pretty busy city that's going on there when you think of all those lambs that are coming into town and all the people. And here comes Jesus as well walking among all the other people that are carrying their lambs and coming with their families. And here comes Jesus into town. And suddenly the people are recognizing Jesus like, hey, that's the guy that healed that Lazarus. That's the guy that can do miracles. So suddenly they get out their palm branches, they throw them down on the ground and they start worshiping him and saying, hey, why don't you become our next king? You think, yeah, they figured it out. Jesus, become the next king. But see, this wasn't the first time that the people wanted Jesus to become king. If you go to back to John chapter 6, verse 14, after Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fishes, John 6 tells us, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to for... Okay, I can read that over. Redo. Sorry. I'm so excited. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. The people were ready to force Jesus to be their king. And you wonder, Jesus, why did you slip away? Did you want these people to be to say, hey, would you be our king? Wasn't that your whole goal? But Jesus slips away. See, the problem with the people at this point is they had their own idea of what kind of a king Jesus would be. They were trying to make Jesus their king that they created. And then they were forcing Jesus to be the king that they had created. That's why Jesus slipped away. See, this is a problem. They wanted Jesus to be their kind of a king. The text tells us that they saw the miracles that Jesus did and they thought, that's the kind of king I want. I want a king that can do a lot of powerful things. That sounds good. But that's often the recipe for disaster when you want to follow Jesus because of powerful things he can do and you're not following Jesus because of his word and his teaching. That can be a danger zone and that's exactly what the people are doing. If you follow Jesus because of his power, you're going to end up being disappointed along the way. Because sooner or later, he's not going to do what you wanted him to do with his power. And so you're going to be disappointed. But if you follow Jesus for his word, his written word and what he says, you're going to realize that you've been spared from a lot of things that could have happened in your life. The word is a constant reminder for us that Jesus really has spared us over and over again. And so that's what the people were doing. They said, no, we just want this God of power. So they're cheering for him to become the next king, and it's not going to work out well. But see, it's not only that. See, the Israelites, they wanted Jesus with power, but they also wanted Jesus to destroy the Roman Empire. They're living in the Roman Empire. They're all discouraged. They're, they're sick of living in the Roman Empire. That's a very oppressive system to live in. So for the Israelites, they're living in the Roman Empire. They're oppressed by the Roman regime. They're oppressed by the Roman government. They live under Herod. 
They live under Caesar. The tax rate for some of the Jewish people was up to 90%. Imagine paying 90% income taxes. That's just really hard to survive. That actually is pretty discouraging after a while. So the Israelites are feeling the oppression. So they're coming, into the, they're coming into Jerusalem for Passover. On one hand, they're remembering, wow, look what God has done in the past. He's freed us from the Egyptians. He set us free. He got us through the wilderness, got us through the Red Sea. And they're thinking, now, wouldn't it be a really good idea if God would free us from the Roman Empire? Wouldn't it be a really good idea if God would just shut down that whole Roman Empire and set us free from all of that? It sounds like a really good idea. But the problem is what they were actually doing is they're actually limiting Jesus. They're limiting what he actually came to do. They're thinking, man, this would just be nice. Free us from the Roman Empire. We could all live in peace without the Roman Empire. But Jesus came to do a whole lot more than just free him from the Roman Empire. He came to actually free them from their real enemy. But so often we can become like the Israelites. We're focusing on that one thing, thinking, but if God, if you did this one thing, man, my life would be a whole lot easier. A lot of times we have one thing in our life. We think if that one thing was gone, then I would be living in paradise. And so often that one thing becomes the idol that we actually focus on more in our life than we actually focus on Jesus. And that's what the Israelites were doing. If you could just figure out how to get free from that one thing. And if you're just focused on that one thing, so often you're going to end up like the Israelites. You're going to be disappointed. Because some of the people that came there for Palm Sunday saying, yeah, let's make him our next king. When it came to Good Friday, they're like, yeah, he's disappointed in me. Put him on the cross. You can become very fickle when God doesn't do what you're expecting him to do. So this is a big picture of what's going on. The Israelites are living in the Roman Empire. They're discouraged. They're frustrated. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. They know all the prophecies that have been handed down about what God wants to do in their life. They know the nine blessings of Passover that have been taught for generations. And they're looking at their life saying, this doesn't line up. They're feeling a little bit hopeless because they're not seeing God do for them what they thought he would do for them. In the middle of it, they have Caesar who's in charge of the Roman Empire and he wants everybody's allegiance. He wants people to worship him. He wants people to call him the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The same titles that were reserved for Jesus, Caesar wants everybody to call him those names. And so, so there's tension because Caesar's jealous. He wants people to follow him. The Pharisees are jealous. They want people to follow him. And they got to get rid of Lazarus. And they got to get rid of Jesus. So everybody kind of has this whole idea of there's one thing that needs to happen that will solve it all. The truth is, there's always going to be one thing in your life. The truth is, there's always going to be somebody else that wants your attention. It might be Caesar, it might be your job, it might be your money. There's something that wants your attention, that wants your allegiance. And so what does Caesar do? He sends in his whole army into Jerusalem. Because what he plans to do is he wants to intimidate the Jews into submission. Seems like a good strategy. 
it actually works a lot. That's a lot of us have to deal with intimidation in our own life that makes us do things we don't want to do. One of the best ways to intimidate a person is to have them keep a secret. Sooner or later, that's going to intimidate you. What if somebody figures this out about me? Here God comes to set the captives free, and what does Caesar do? He sends in the army to bring intimidation. So why is Jesus a big threat? Seems like he's the nice guy on the block. He's healing people. He's setting people free from demons. Blind people are seeing. Deaf people are hearing. People that can't walk starting to walk think like the guy would get a little promotion. They would like him. They don't like him because people are following him. That's why in John 12 it says, Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. See, Lazarus lived his life in such a way that when people saw Lazarus' resurrected life, they're like, I want to be like that. Lazarus lived his life that he was a testimony of the power of God. I think we all need to live like Lazarus. We need to live like Lazarus that the enemy wants to kill us because we are so good at reflecting Christ to the world. The sad thing is, and some of you probably know Christians, that really they're not a threat to the enemy. They're actually pawns that the enemy uses against Christians. But here Lazarus lived his resurrected life in such a way that the enemy wanted to kill him. That's a powerful man. That's a powerful man with a powerful testimony. That people are following Jesus because they're like, wow, look what God has done in that man's life. That's how God wants us to live. That people say, wow, did you hear her testimony? Wow. Did you hear her testimony? Did you hear his testimony? Did you hear their testimonies? Have you watched how that person follows Jesus? That's what God wants to do in our life. That's what the power of the blessings of Passover work for in our life. So we can become an example to the entire world of, look what happens when God blesses your life. Look how you can live under the power and authority of Jesus Christ, that your very own life is a testimony of the power of God. That is the way God wanted us to live in the New Testament. That's how the God wants to live us even right now, to live like Lazarus, to give the enemy a good reason to want to kill us. That's how we got to live. That's why we want to spend some time saying, how do you tell my testimony? How do I share with people what God's done in my life? How do I look for opportunity to do that? That's what Lazarus did. He just went around town just telling people what Jesus did in his life. But also he lived in such a way that were people like, I want to be like him. That's what we want to do. When Jesus resurrects you, we want to be a part of the process of seeing other people resurrected. So when Jesus is riding into the city... He's on the back of a donkey. He's riding on the back of a donkey, which means he's coming in peace. So once again, we have a lot of confusion going on here. The Roman Empire is thinking, he's riding on the back of a donkey. That's suspicious. 
I know that means peace, but I think he's up to something. And the disciples, they don't have any idea what is going on at all. But then out comes out the palm branches. The waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, which means God save us. Now the Roman Empire, they're looking at palm branches thinking, ooh, that's a sign of insurrection. That's a sign that, uh, that you guys are coming against us. And the Israelites are thinking, no, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about palm branches were a sign of celebration. Book of Revelations talk about palm branches are the sign of, a, of, of celebration. You got two different groups of people looking at one palm branch and they have two completely different ideas going on in their head. But Jesus is coming in complete peace. He's not coming in rebellion. He's coming in peace to bring peace to everybody. Not just the Jewish community, but everybody that's there. And it's stirring up problems, stirring up trouble. It gets to the point that in the book of Luke, the Roman army says to the Pharisees, say to Jesus, can't you shut all these people up? Tell them to be quiet. But Jesus doesn't do that. But these simple acts of worship are seen by the enemy as rebellion. In some way, they are. Caesar wanted that worship. If you're worshiping Jesus with those palm branches, to him it looks like rebellion. Sometimes your acts of worship look like rebellion. So this is a stage that's going on. Caesar wants all the attention. But who's getting it? Jesus, Lazarus. Pilate is sending his army into the city to keep everybody quiet and to make sure everybody pays their taxes. The Jews all want to be freed from the Romans. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just want to kill Jesus and Lazarus. And it's five days before Passover, so you got everybody coming into town. 250,000 sheep are walking around town, and there's Jesus on the back of a donkey actually coming in peace. Nobody really knows what's going on. And that's actually okay. Because Jesus knows what's going on. And God has a plan. Everybody's expectations are going to be thrown off. What everybody expects to happen is not going to happen because Jesus always has something better than you could expect. Even though everybody there is thinking, oh, if you could do this one thing, Jesus says, no, I'm going to do one thing better. The point of Passover is the point of Purim is that God always has a plan that's better than any of us could imagine or ask for, or hope for. But yet during Passover and during this Holy Week, there's three things that we really need to be asking ourselves. One of the most important questions that from Palm Sunday as we learn is, who really is your Lord? Is it really Jesus? Or is it Caesar? Or is it somebody else? Passover reminds our annual reminder, is Jesus the one that you are following completely? Is he the one that you put your hope and trust in? And then the second question is, are you actually following Jesus? See, it's one thing to say, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, but do you actually follow him on a daily basis? He's actually your goal every day to say, I want to be with Jesus so I can become more like Jesus and do the things that he did. Those are signs of a follower. 
We say, I want to revolve my life around Jesus, and that to do that, i got to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. That's the second question that I ask us. See, prior to this day being called Palm Sunday, it was called Lamb Selection Day. That was the day all the Israelites had to go gather their little lamb to take in the city to be sacrificed. See, a lot of people would come into Jerusalem, and they might come from, I don't know, hundreds of miles away, and that would be a little awkward taking that little lamb with you. So they would come to Jerusalem, and they would buy a lamb. Remember, this wasn't any, any old lamb. You had to have a really good lamb without defects. So a lot of people would wait till they got to Jerusalem. They would go buy a lamb on the way. Just so happens that one of the best places to buy a lamb was this little city called Bethlehem. It was also known as a place where lambs were born. Perfect, spotless lambs were born in Bethlehem. And so a lot of the people, they would come, and they would, on their way to Jerusalem, they would go buy this perfect little lamb. And they would all have to come into Jerusalem through one of the gates called the Sheep's Gate. That's where everybody came with their sheep, and just so happened. That was the gate Jesus came in. Through the Sheep's Gate. And that little lamb had to be with the family. This wasn't Amazon that you could just buy the lamb and say, just go bring it down over and have it sacrificed. That lamb had to be with you. That lamb had to be with you and your family for several days before Passover. Where that lamb went, you went. You couldn't just have a lamb and drop him off and have him sacrifice for your sins and leave. No, that lamb had to be part of your family. Where that lamb went, you went. See, a lot of times we like to say, Jesus is my Lord, I follow Jesus, but we don't bring that lamb with us wherever we go. We pick and choose where that lamb goes. Sometimes we like to leave him at home. Sometimes we put him in little cages. But if you're going to have a lamb sacrifice for your sins of your family, that lamb had to go wherever you went for a few days. And that lamb had to be perfect. You couldn't just give the scrawny old lamb or you got the cheap lamb. You had to have the perfect lamb. And then that lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of your family. Now, now there could be a little bit of a problem when you got 250,000 lambs running around the city. It'd be easy to lose your lamb. I feel like I'm telling a nursery rhyme as many times as I say lamb. But it feels like you could lose that little sheep. That could be mistaken wrong how I say that. So this little animal that's going around in your family, it would be easy to lose your little lamb. So what did the father of the family do? He put the name. He put the name of the family on the lamb. They would take these bronze labels and the dad or the father of the family he'd write the name of the family on that lamb and he would attach it to that lamb that was a sign that that lamb was there to rescue your family your name was written on the lamb 
And the scripture tells us that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's such a picture of our salvation, that our names are written on the Lamb, that wherever that Lamb goes, we go with that Lamb, that we are saved, we are redeemed, and we are rescued, and our names are written on the Lamb. That's what happens when Jesus is your Savior. That's what happens when Jesus is your Lord and you put him first and you decide to follow him. Your name is written on that lamb. That even if you got separated from that lamb, your name's still on that lamb. No matter if you do something stupid, your name's still on that lamb. That's comforting to know. This has nothing to do about our performance. It's about the spotless lamb that has our name written on it. See, it's so interesting. The Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus. That was a good plan. Kill Lazarus, you get rid of the evidence of what Jesus can do in your life. Kill the testimony. It's interesting that that was the plan to kill Lazarus and to kill his testimony. And to kill Jesus as well. But it's interesting. Only one of those two men got killed. Jesus was one that was killed and Lazarus escaped. See, we need to live our life in such a way that the enemy wants to kill us. But as you see in the story, once you've been resurrected from Jesus, nobody can kill you. Even the best plans of the Pharisees against Lazarus were spoiled because that wasn't God's outcome for Lazarus' life. That's a beautiful part of the story, that Jesus continues to be the sacrificed one over and over and over again. Not just 2,000 years ago on Lamb Selection Day, not just 2,000 years ago on Passover, but Jesus continues to be the spotless Lamb of God that's protected, that protects you and I from any plan of the enemy. And that's another reason we just celebrate Passover. We celebrate that our names are written on that Lamb, and we celebrate the fact that we can be like Lazarus with such a testimony. And even though the Pharisees might want to kill us, they can't. Because the lamb always goes first and always protects us. It's kind of an interesting thing in the story. They totally planned to kill Lazarus. He easily could have been on another cross. But he was stopped from killing him. That's such a protection that God gives to each of us. That he protects us from our enemies. See, that's what God did for us. Way better than just destroying the Roman Empire. He destroyed the one that actually wants to kill us. It's such a beautiful part of the story that in the Gospel of Luke 19, it gives another part of the story that John doesn't give. It talks about, it says, that when Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. The compassion of Jesus caused him to weep over the city. The same thing that Jesus did a few days earlier when he wept over his friend Lazarus being dead. Jesus was weeping over a city because he knew 
that there's some people in that city that they would never come to a saving relationship with him. He knew that people in that city would deny being rescued by him and would spend eternity separated from him. And so Jesus was weeping with compassion for the lost. He's weeping with compassion for people that would never spend eternity with him. So we have an invitation on Palm Sunday to live like Lazarus and to weep like Jesus. That we would be stirred with compassion to live our life as a reflection of Christ. So when people say like, wow, look how she lives. I want to be like Jesus. Look at how Chad lives. I want to be like Jesus. We can only do that when we're filled with compassion for the lost. So God, I just wrap up my message today asking, Lord, that you'd fill us with compassion for the lost. I ask that you'd fill us with compassion with the broken and the marginalized. That you'd fill us with compassion for the people that don't know you or haven't heard from you yet. Help us to live a life that is a reflection of your Son. Help us to live a life that is just an example of what resurrection looks like. And Lord, help us to be a community that weeps that people don't know you, that we prioritize the lost over our priority of thinking of what's the one thing you could do for me. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us that are here and are gathered online or watch later in the week to do a work of transformation in each of our hearts and our lives and our minds, to make us fully devoted followers of Jesus, but to make us devoted to be an example of resurrection in other people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.